0: with
1: a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93one CFISFM. CFIS-FM.
0: And coming up on today's show, Alan Wishart will be by as we talk with Karen Pichet from the Wheeland Warriors of the North, also Chris Knight of the Cruisin' Classics Car Club, and Jesse Church will be in to talk about uh, golf and the recent WHL Bantam Draft. That's all later on in the hour, but first up, it is Frontburner from CBC News.
2: Hello, I'm Jamie Poisson. The story in a new book called The End of October, it starts like this, 47 people die of acute hemorrhagic fever in an internment camp in Indonesia. The disease takes the world by storm. Dubbed the Kongali flu, it paralyzes health organizations and governments. And Reading this new novel right now, well, it is an incredibly surreal experience given the COVID-19 pandemic. Lawrence Wright is the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist behind the end of October. He's written unflinching nonfiction about Al-Qaeda and Scientology. And in this book, he brings the same level of detail and in-depth research that he does to his journalism. Today, Lawrence Wright on the parallels between his new work of fiction And the facts of COVID-19. This is Frumper. Hi, Lawrence. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. We're so appreciative.
3: Oh, it's a pleasure, Jamie. Thank you for having me.
2: I have to say it's a wild experience reading your novel in this current climate.
3: Well, it's a wild experience for me, too, honestly. Uh, You know, I pick up the newspaper, and I feel like I'm reading another chapter in my book, unfortunately.
2: I bet, and I hope that we can talk about that today. But, But first, you know, at the heart of this novel is the Congoli flu. It's really your central character. Right. And can you tell us more about what it is, where it came from?
3: Well, I modeled this flu on the 1918 Spanish flu. You know, When I was out researching and talking to the experts, I, I asked them what would happen uh, if a, a new virus like the Spanish flu came back into our society in a time when we travel so intensely and our cities are so densely populated. And I decided I would make it my flu uh, something like, it, it's not a coronavirus, it is an influenza virus. Uh, but in many respects, they have a lot of similarities. Uh, they, my virus is probably more mortal but less contagious than is the COVID-19. I guess I'm, in my, my imagination, I was stirred by the, the, you know SARS and MERS, which are also coronaviruses, are far more fatal than COVID-19. Uh, and so I was, I was thinking about those viruses as well when I was concocting my own.
2: I, I understand one of the reasons you wanted to write this book as well was, you know, an attempt to explore the question of how human civilization can fall apart. And so, what, what made you want to explore that through an influenza pandemic?
3: Well, I wanted to add a stress to society, and you know there many different ways of doing that depressions and wars and so on but I was intrigued by the idea that uh, a disease could undermine civilization and and cause other things to happen And in the novel, I just take trends that I see in society already, the the antagonism between a lot of uh, nations, for instance, and and draw them out. You know, once you start the blame game, which we see happening uh, intensely now and probably will happen even more intensely soon, those are very dangerous provocations. And I entertain them in the novel to see where they lead.
2: More about that blame game that you're seeing now, and how you think it could get worse.
3: Well, diseases always come with stigma and blame, and uh, you know, like in the in, in the <laughs> Renaissance, the uh, the French people called uh, uh, venereal disease the Neapolitan disease, and the and the Italians called it the French disease. But you know, the, this even Spanish influenza, for instance, is a way of labeling. A disease with Spain had nothing to do with the origin of the 1918 flu, but uh, it got blamed for creating it. And you see that happening right now with the the Americans calling it uh, the Wuhan or the Chinese flu. Why do you
4: keep using this? Because it comes from China.
5: It's not racist at all, no, not at
6: all. It comes from China. That's why comes from China. I want to be accurate.
7: Yeah, please, John.
3: And uh, and the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians are all saying it was something that was cooked up in an American bioweapons lab. Beijing has also pushed the narrative that the virus was brought to China by
1: the U.S. military. Nearly 250 members of the U.S. military were in Wuhan in October last year to take part in the World Military Games. China's new position appears to contradict its own assessment from January.
2: Right. I know one of the themes or storylines in your book is the idea that conspiracy theories can often come out of crises like this. And we're seeing tons of them, that 5G networks are spreading this disease around the world. In this video that's been shared thousands of times around the world, Thomas Cowan, an American holistic doctor, claims a virus isn't behind the pandemic.
0: anybody want to make one guess as to where the first completely blanketed 5G city in the world was. (laughs) Exactly.
2: That's not true and 5G is a long way from being up and running around the world. I want to know a little bit more about what it feels like to be living so many themes that you just spent the last few years writing about. So you know this idea of bio-warfare and conspiracy theories but also in your book You know, you talk about long lineups at grocery stores. Uh, There is a um, very tense and eerie scene where the White House is being briefed on the seriousness of the situation. And they're being told that there isn't a vaccine yet. There are not enough ventilators. What has it been like for you watching this pandemic as as someone so steeped in this for the last, I would imagine, several years? It feels like there's so much research in this book.
3: When I started writing the, the novel, I, I created a calendar uh, on my computer. And actually, I set the year 2020, uh, not for any particular reason. I mean, I don't give dates in the book, but in my imagination, it happened this year. You know, 1918 started, the flu started in the spring. So this one started a little earlier uh, it started in, actually, I think the first case, the very first case was in November in in China, and it wasn't announced until New Year's Eve. But it didn't really get hold, uh, take a good hold until January and February. On January
1: 21st, when Washington State reports the first coronavirus case in the United States, within a week, the CDC confirms Illinois, California, and Arizona also have cases.
3: So it was a little uh, ahead of, the Spanish flu and also of my flu, but in many respects, they march along uh, pretty much on the same timeline, and uh, so I, you know, I, I'm i curious about whether that will continue. I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm a little sick of the coincidences because it turns out really badly in my novel, and I hope it doesn't go that direction.
2: It does, I will say, turn out, the ending feels quite bleak. Now I know that you spoke with epidemiologists, immunologists, microbiologists, you know, security experts, vaccine experts, public health officials for this book. And, you know, speaking with all of these experts, how have those conversations informed your own understanding of what's happening? Is there anything that really sticks out to you as you watch this pandemic develop today?
3: Yes, because, you know, almost everybody I spoke to, all the experts I, you know, would ask them, you know, what would happen if, you know, one of these pandemics came along like 1918. They all had been spending their entire career asking themselves the same question, and they all knew that it was going to happen. They just didn't know when.
2: Right. What are all these experts telling you about their thoughts on government response here? Are they feeling like the preparedness is worse than what? they thought it was going to be? How are they reacting?
3: One thing that is a common note is the dismay uh, at the stumble, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which has always been a jewel uh, in you know the, the, the government bureaucracy. It was one of the most distinguished, distinguished agencies in our government. And to see it stumble so badly and really place the nation's health at peril because of their failures
2: governor andrew cuomo is set to deliver another update on the ongoing coronavirus outbreak
6: the cdc i believe was slow to begin with they were not ready for this they should have been ready for this
3: cdc wake up let the states test let private labs test Uh, this has been very dismaying and i think it's track you can track it back you know, lack of leadership no doubt has something to do with it, but, you know, it's been handicapped by budget cuts, and uh, it's not just the Centers for Disease Control. You know, inside the White House uh, at the National Security Council, there was a pandemic response team, uh, which was one of the very first things that the Trump administration uh, eliminated when it came into office. And the officials that were working in that office left this administration abruptly, and the officials that worked
2: in that office said that you that the White House lost valuable time because that office wasn't disbanded. What do you make of that?
3: Well, I just think it's a nasty question, uh, and when you say me, I didn't do it. That's the team that would have been leading the response uh, to this uh, pandemic, but they're not there. So, yeah, we it's very dismaying for people who work in public health. To see the way in which the administration has stumbled and of course it's not just America. Many countries are are facing real difficulties in coping with this virus but this is a time when you see what kind of society you're actually living in.
2: I also want to talk to you about the global response. So Henry Parsons Uh, your main character in the book he's working sort of at the behest of the World Health Organization and what access did you get to the WHO when you were writing this book
3: I didn't actually go to the WHO I talked to people who worked with it but um, and interestingly the Center for Disease Control when I was a young reporter I, I I did a number of stories out of the CDC I lived in Atlanta but I couldn't get them to return my calls. <laughs> I, was, mm. I was totally shocked. Uh, and I think it was an early indication of the disorganization, the disarray inside the CDC that uh, that they couldn't uh, handle a reporter's ordinary approaches.
2: You know, even, even though you weren't allowed to get access to the WHO, I know in the book, Henry is often frustrated by its bureaucracy, right? Yeah. Um, about sort of competing agencies, how slow to move it is, and is that something that you're hearing now as well?
3: The WHO is, it it ha- is first of all, it's a handicapped entity because it has no authority, and uh, so and it's also chronically underfunded. There, are, you know, a lot of problems with the WHO, but it's the only global entity that has any standing uh, to try to coordinate a global response. So I'm dismayed by the fact that we are cutting off funding from the WHO.
1: As the organization's leading sponsor, the United States has a duty to insist on full accountability.
6: I talked to senior administration officials about this and they say that freeze is a 60 to 90 day freeze. So they're trying to get leverage in order to reform the, the World Health Organization.
3: It's just a terrible response in the middle of a a ravaging pandemic, such as we're facing right now.
2: What do you make, though, of the criticism that um, the WHO was influenced by China too much, uh, that they downplayed this pandemic?
6: On January 14th, China is still telling the WHO they have not seen human-to-human transmission.
3: That day, the WHO echoes China's message. The WHO uh, was influenced by China, but on the other hand, uh, it's it's in this. The WHO is in the position of being a a supplicant, not an authority. Michael Ryan, he's
6: the executive director of the
3: WHO's emergency program.
8: The International Health Regulations is a framework negotiated by 194 countries. We simply implement that framework on behalf of our member states.
3: It has to get the permission of different nations in order to uh, even uh, go there, like China uh, wouldn't let anybody in for the first three weeks. Uh, You know, it was clearly keeping, trying to keep a lid on this, and uh, but the WHO can't just ignore that. They have to get uh, the permission of Chinese authorities even to go into the country. You know, Jamie, I think this is a bad system, but it's the only one we have.
2: And and the idea being here that you know, uh, trying to deal with this or trying to address this bad system in the middle of a pandemic, a lot of people are questioning. How much more damage that can do right
3: yeah i mean what's what we depend upon in a situation like this where you know this virus knows no boundaries what we need is you know sh- sharing of information a common source of data and uh and some kind of oversight that's what the who is supposed to provide does it do it inadequately well yes probably so but Does anybody else do it? No. (laughs) So, you know, that's the situation we face. Mm
0: -hmm. That's part one of this morning's front burner from CBC News. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM
1: up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
0: And now part two of this morning's front burner from CBC News.
2: You know, we, we talked before about the end of your novel and how it's quite bleak. I don't want to give it away for people listening, but you, know, I wonder what lessons you think people could take away from this novel about how we might be able to come out the other side of this and, and perhaps avoid some of the bleakest possible outcomes here
3: well you know I've been looking back in history uh, trying to guess you know how how will we change because of this because we are at a kind of civilizational reset you know there have been others in my lifetime you know 9-11 was such a period and uh, the Arab Spring uh, for that region of the world and in the case of 9-11, I remember so strongly the sense that, oh my gosh, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to stand for something now. We're gonna have to be the country that we have always said we are. Today our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. And we responded with the best of America. But instead we invaded Iraq. We are a peaceful people, yet we're not a fragile people. And we will not be intimidated by thugs And killers. And in the case of the Arab Spring, uh, we had, there's a region of the world that's so desperate for democracy and so needful of it.
1: The crowds on Tahrir Square are showing no intention of giving up their protest. Tomorrow, in our millions, they shout revolution on the streets. The next date with history.
3: Egypt after Friday prayers. And yet, uh, in, in most countries, it's just become even more tyrannical.
0: Egypt's post-revolution euphoria didn't last long. Its first democratically elected leader lasted just 12 months. The Muslim Brotherhood's Mohammed Morsi was overthrown
3: in a military coup led by Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. So, you know, I think we have an... Op- but, you know, look back at the Black Death. Which brought an end to the Middle Ages and opened the door to the Renaissance. A clear, a wind of change blew through civilization, and and, and it was reborn. Now, I'm not saying that COVID-19 is the Black Death, but it is a, a major event in in history. And how we change is the question, not whether. And the what we need to remember is that the change is in our hands. We have the ability to make the kinds of changes that this disease has shown us that we need to make. Whether we actually choose to do that is another question.
2: And what kind of changes would you like to see?
3: Well, for one thing, I think we do need to have some, some sort of national health system in the United States. Uh, we're one of the reasons we have such high mortality figures and so so many infections is i just think that we don't we have people who are uninsured and afraid to go to the hospital i think also we need we need to respect science uh you know this disparagement of science is is uh, is is a very dangerous uh fact of life in in our society and uh for instance when we get a vaccine there'll be the anti-vaxxers uh, on the bandwagon. And I'm not saying that vaccines are all safe. There is an element of risk, but you know there is also the need for a population to protect itself. And I'm worried that when we get the vaccine, that there'll be a, a strong movement not to, to take it. And it'll be aided and abetted by misinformation, some of it deliberate. And you know this may be our only chance to rescue, you know, tens of thousands of lives, uh, and and subdue this uh, horrible virus. But I'm not sure we're going to be up to the task.
2: I'm not sure if it's fair if I say this, but it, it does sound like you're not particularly optimistic here. You know, the two modern examples you used resulted in little little change.
3: Uh, let me say that I'm I'm neutral on it. I. I'm not optimistic or pessimistic, I'm just observing that in, in recent history, uh, we have subverted the opportunities that we've had to make profound change in our society, a profound change that is constructive. And uh, now I think we have, staring us in the face, you know, the need for uh, political reform, the need for uh, rehabilitation of our government, uh you know there there's in in the need to uh create alliances where we've been creating divisions you know all of these things are totally obvious but that doesn't mean that they're going to be addressed in an adult fashion because we have we have failed so so much recently i worry about that but i still cling to the belief that you know destiny is in our hands And we can make changes that will be profound and long lasting and 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 healthful, not just for uh, the population, but for society and civilization as a whole.
2: Okay, Lawrence Wright, author of The End of October. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today.
3: Thank you, Jamie. It was a pleasure.
2: Wright's novel, The End of October, is out today, and you can buy it wherever you buy your books. I'm Jamie Poisson, and thanks so much for listening to FrontBurner. Talk to you tomorrow.
1: FrontBurner is a production of CBC News. FrontBurner can be found on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. It's After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
0: And now an interview Alan Wisher did with Karen Pichet of the Wheeland Warriors of the North last Thursday evening. And first up, Alan asked her about the process on how they uh, realized this year's event was not going ahead.
7: Well, I know over the weekend um, there was talk of uh, larger events not happening over the summer, so that was pretty much. The um, first kind of heads up, and then I was given a call actually Tuesday afternoon, um, just letting us know, or letting I guess the captains know that the ride was being postponed from this August to next August, so in 2021.
5: Okay, so there won't be a ride to Conquer Cancer this year.
7: No, no, that's right, that's right.
5: Okay, so now. When you got the official word, what was your first reaction?
7: Um, I wasn't surprised because, you know, I have been following the news and, um, you know, listening to the reports daily. Um, and that's, you know, not surprised. Proud, I guess, would be another word. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of us, I can see probably for everyone on the team, we're all looking forward to this event, Um you know, it was it was a bit of a letdown, yeah.
5: And the other event, which I think you guys would have actually been having this weekend, obviously it was uh, canceled some time ago, was the big yeah. gala dinner.
7: Yeah. Our gala was set to go, um, well, it was supposed to be taking place April 25th, this Saturday. And uh, quite some time ago, of course, we knew that we wouldn't be holding our gala on um, April 25th. And we postponed it to an indefinite date uh, but since then now we know that we're not actually going to be holding the gala uh, this year at all it'll be postponed until next year as well
5: so you guys had obviously started training, the weather had just cleared up nicely, the roads were nice and bare and then this happens so what now? Obviously you can't get together for your group rides even yet
7: no we have um, well I know that just this last maybe week uh, people have been getting out on their bikes uh, they are all riding either solo or with their, you know, immediate family members. Um, I know that they're all observing the social distancing really, really well. Mm-hmm. We can still get out and ride. We just won't be riding as a team and doing our bigger training rides at this point anyways. I'm not sure when things will change. but. And
5: I guess to some extent the one sort of nice thing there though is you don't have that deadline of we have to get the training in for the end of August now you this 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 summer basically is just training basically
7: yes yes not as much pressure I guess mm-hmm. to, to be uh, ready to ride 250 kilometers by the end of August. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we can take a little bit more of a relaxed approach for sure. Yeah.
5: So now how many people did you have on the team when the word came down? Cause I know you guys are always adding.
7: Uh, we were technically 84 and, um, you know, that's, I don't know how that's going to change over the course of the upcoming year. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the weekend, uh, Dates are going to change from this year was August 29th and 30th, I believe, and next year is 28th and 29th. Okay. And, uh, you know, that being said, plans always do change. If there could be someone, hopefully a wedding or something like that. Um, mm. Because I know this year's weddings are probably, you know, again, there's so many things that people were looking forward to that are not taking place, right?
5: Yeah, so I'm thinking the people, when I first heard that it had been postponed, as you say, for a year, basically, uh, the people I sort of felt sorry for away were obviously yourself, because I know how much work you put into it, but I was thinking also the people who were just coming into it for the first year this year, because they were probably yeah. already starting to look forward.
7: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first-time riders... Uh, others that were, you know, in it for five years who are, Mm. who are going to be receiving their golden helmet this year, um, you know, just, yeah, it is, it's, it's a, it's disheartening.
5: So, I guess the other thing that sort of works out a little bit is you do have, because you know it's going to be a while before you'll be able to do any of the group rides or anything, so, Everybody gets the chance to just sort of sit back a little bit, do what their training is, just do it on their own and not have to worry too much about a schedule.
7: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think the sad part really is missing out on that camaraderie Mm -hmm. that, you know, we build as the summer months, as we train throughout the summer leading up to the big ride. So I've yet to see how we're going to kind of. I'm no tackle that.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: I do have a virtual meeting coming up this weekend uh, with the team and I'm hoping that a lot of people get involved and tune in and, and we can get together on social media. Um, mm-hmm. Brainstorm I think a little bit. Yeah.
5: And now you were talking about the camaraderie that the team gets as you train together but I know talking to you and other team members before about actually being on the ride itself, there's a real camaraderie that develops even just in those two days.
7: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because we all come together, we don't necessarily all come together while we're training throughout the summer. A lot of my riders don't necessarily reside in Prince George. Mm -hmm. So we all once we get down to the event in Vancouver. That is when the entire team comes together. I mean, I have riders from, you know, Kelowna, Kamloops, Vancouver, Golden,
5: BC, etc., right? So, yeah. And I'm guessing that was possibly one of the other things that played into the organizers making the decision to make the call this week is to give people a chance to make other plans for that weekend, you know, because somebody may have had something else that they were thinking about doing again. They may or may not be able to do it by that time. But by by that time, we might be able to hold larger group of things again. And there might be something that somebody had sort of said, well, I, I won't be able to do that because I'm going to be in the ride to conquer cancer. Well, now they might be able to do it if that event can still go ahead.
7: yes mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah.
5: now, the other thing, and I know you're not the only person like this with the Wheeling Warriors of the North, is that you are also on the front lines of the COVID-19 fight because... You work at the hospital.
7: Um, yes, I am an LPN, and I do work in complex care, so, yeah. And there's several of us on the team that are working in health care.
5: So does that... I'm not sure that we've ever actually talked about this before, but because we've never had something like COVID-19 before, it's not a cancer as such, but did you start to feel a little bit more of the need to keep the Ride to Conquer Cancer going when you see what's happening with COVID-19?
7: I have to admit when I when when we first sort of started I guess into the COVID-19 thing obviously we were just sort of holding back and waiting to see what was going to happen initially and then fundraising wise you know it's really hard to go out there and ask people for money when you know that there are a lot of individuals who are, you know, not working and, um, you know, this, that stress is sort of building. Um, yeah, but I, I think that just of, in the last few days, um, after they announced the um, cancellation or postponement of the ride, I started rethinking that and how Council doesn't really take a break. No. Council didn't get the memo that, you know, COVID-19 is taking place. So, I mean, I know it's going to affect the fundraising, but I don't think it means that it's going to stop.
5: Now, the funds that you had already raised for this year, are those just going to basically sort of carry over to next year then?
7: Absolutely, absolutely.
5: So you've got to sort of keep track of who you've already um, gotten funds from and try to remember not to hit them up again next year unless they, are, so unless they volunteer to give more.
7: It, it, no, it's, it's sort of more like this. Like if you look at the Roger Conquer Cancer, um, our Wheel and Warriors Roger Conquer Cancer page, you'll see all the individuals and what they've already... Because the, each individual is required to raise $2,500 minimum. Mm-hmm. So... What's there now just carries over to the next year.
4: Okay.
7: So each individual, all of the numbers that you see right now are individual fundraising numbers. Now, the gala itself, we obviously aren't going to be able to contribute the gala funds to that total Mm. because we're not holding a gala. You know, it's very sad. We were... Probably I had projected that we were gonna raise up in the you know, somewhere around eighty thousand to ninety thousand dollars at that one event. Yeah. So it is a it's a big blow. But that being said, next year we can just carry on. It's it's almost like we're just sort of skipping a year of you know, we don't worry our life, I guess.
5: Yeah. So do you think there's a chance over the next couple of months as you get the chance to talk to people on your team, even if you can't hold the big get-togethers, as you were saying, but you might be talking to them and just looking even for more fundraising ideas for next year then?
7: Yeah, absolutely. I've already started kind of brainstorming myself as to what we could do differently, you know. Um, I've, I've been so used to putting on a gala every year to support many riders, but there. are you know, there has to be another way, mm-hmm. I guess, of doing the same thing. And I think all of the different um, charities are sort of in the same boat with trying to think about how we can do things differently, right? Yeah.
5: So, Karen, if people want more information about the and Warriors of the North, whether they're interested in getting onto the team for what is now next year's ride or contributing to the and Warriors, how do they do it? Sure.
7: Uh, we you can. They can go to um, the Ride to Conquer Cancer mm-hmm. and just go to the ride to conquer site and click on Vancouver because there are four in the country and um, then they can go to Wheel and Warriors of the North right there and look at the roster and there's options there where they can donate to an individual on the team or even join the team.
0: From the Wheeland Warriors of the North, that is Karen P. as uh, first broadcast Thursday evening during our post-to-post program here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. In a moment, After 9 returns with a couple of more interviews.
8: Featuring
1: the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
0: Our Thursday evening show, Post to Post, is a sports talk program, but sometimes we venture a little bit off that beaten path, and this one is sports-related, but not quite sports. Chris Knight of the Cruisin' Classics Car Club. Uh, Alan Wisher talking with him, and first off, Alan uh, asked a little bit about uh, the current situation with social distancing and and how they can get together.
8: Well, we can. We just have to... uh respect the provincial health orders and, mm-hmm. and uh, regarding the assembly of groups etc but uh, we'll get it done okay.
5: so do you know if any of the members have gotten together even just in small groups even just to look at the work that guys are doing on their cars
8: uh, not to my knowledge I don't think that's taking place yet okay. uh, the, you know the cruising classics are are um, a very respectful uh, yeah. group and um we're not about to compromise our own health and safety uh, for the sake of looking at each other's hot rods. We'll get blown out plenty of time
5: to do that. <laughs> so now, how many members are there in the Cruising Classics, approximately?
8: Approximately 75, wow. men and women. And uh, um, they are from Prince George and a few other communities in the
5: north. Okay. Now, what is the definition of Classics? Do you have a specific date that the car has to be older than?
8: Not at all. Okay. Um, uh, our, our mandate is simply to enjoy your ride with other people that enjoy their rides.
5: Now, what kind of a car do you yourself have?
8: Uh, a 1933 Ford 500 Coupe.
5: <laughs> okay, so that definitely classifies as a classic.
8: Um, it's, a, it's more of a hot rod. It's, uh, there's not much Ford left in it. <laughs> Um, or left on it, but uh, it, it looks like a 33 Ford. That's about the extent of it.
5: Okay. And now I guess that's the thing that each of the individual members can decide for themselves, can't they, is how much modification they want to make to the vehicle.
8: Absolutely. We have we have members who own completely stocked vehicles, mm-hmm. you know, older muscle cars. Uh, our former president has a beautiful 69 uh, Mustang, mm-hmm. and uh, we have people who have cars modified um, beyond um, most people's expectations, <laughs> mine being one of them, and um, we have everything in between.
5: Do most of the people that you, whose vehicles you've seen, though, try to do at least what you've done? Because you said you've modified your vehicle a fair bit, but it still looks like the original vehicle. Is that what most people try to do? Is whatever else they do make it look the same?
8: Everybody has a different taste. Some people prefer trucks over cars, shoves over Fords, stock over modified Uh, we have people with with very new cars that have uh, a little bit of secrecy under the hood um, sometimes referred to as sleepers and so we don't uh, we don't question or judge anybody's taste we welcome everybody
5: so now obviously this would not happen right now because of social distancing but have there ever been any fights between members of the club discussing chevys and fords and stuff like that
8: Nothing serious. No, um, we poke fun at each other, and uh, and it's all historical. Mm -hmm. You know, no different than than uh, than you drive a Ford every day to work, and I drive a Chevy every day to work. It's the same with the hot crowd. Mm -hmm. We we totally respect everybody's everybody's decision to purchase and modify or not modify whatever they purchase.
5: So now I know you guys usually have a number of events over the summer months especially, um, what's been happening so far with those? Like, have any of them postponed or canceled?
8: Well, the, uh, the show and shine, the Father's Day show and shine, unfortunately, um, had to be canceled. And we made that decision sooner than later simply because our show is known to attract tens of thousands of very respectful and very appreciative spectators from Prince George and the north and operates of 400 of the finest vehicles in northern BC. So this decision had to be made. And that made that decision was made uh, on the on the uh, heels, if you will, of the provincial health orders and the recommendations. So the the Crimson Classics Father's Day Show in China is canceled this year, and we are already planning for the 2021 show. Wow. So that was probably the biggest the biggest decision, the biggest hit that the club mm-hmm. took this year. Um, we've also had to indefinitely postpone the Thursday evening cruise to the College Heights AMW. Oh. Uh, you know, cruising the dub is, is a fun get together, and these are mini car shows, if you will, and they attract onlookers. So we felt it best to temporarily halt, halt this practice as well because uh, the optics of having groups of people around our cars uh, will, you know, the fingers would be horned at us for organizing these get togethers. Yeah. So those are the two, probably the two biggest cancellations, if you will, or postponements that we've had to deal with this year. And a few other minor things, uh, you know, we're we're not holding meetings now. Mm -hmm. We used to hold our meetings live in in a classroom together, and now our club meetings are held a little less formally with uh, emails and telephone. We're still able to conduct business, but we just miss out on the post-meeting bowl sessions (laughs) as well as the the mandatory ice cream run that that we enjoy in the summer.
5: (laughs) Now, there's nothing stopping individual mem- members though obviously from taking their vehicles out for a spin right
8: i uh, know i am impatiently waiting for the city to sweep the gravel off of my street and i will take my car out every single day that it's not raining
5: wow and do you, do, you, do you do you do that just to keep the car running or do you do it to sort of show off a little bit
8: and there's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I run the car occasionally through the winter just to keep, uh, just to keep the pulse going, my pulse. And um, mm-hmm. um, the, the rush that, that comes from driving a car that took me five years to acquire and build and perfect uh, never goes away.
4: Mm-hmm.
8: And um, I, it's, it's a head-turner, so I, I enjoy driving my car. But it, I, I built it for me. And uh, so I'll, I'll drive it until it falls apart. Mm.
5: Now, if you were going out to drive, would there be a chance one day that you might give one of the members a call and say, hey, let's meet, and the two of us can have just a little parade even, so it's not just one vehicle, there's a couple uh, of vehicles those,
8: out? Those plans are already in the works. Oh. We've had some uh, informal discussions about meeting, say, at, uh, at CN Centre. Mm-hmm. Everybody sits in their car, and we all meet at 7, at 715 first guy out the gate leads the parade, and if we drive up uh, up north and make a loop and come back uh, via the university down through College Heights, back to the CN Center, and then break it up from there, uh, it gives us an opportunity to, uh, to fly the colors around town, to let everybody know that the club has survived, um, not that there was any doubt, but uh, it's, it still gives us an opportunity to show off, which is in everybody's blood that owns one of these cars.
5: Yeah. Now I guess the bad thing there though, is always again you still wouldn't be able to do the ice cream run, would
8: you? Yeah. Uh, Not unless we all went through the drive-through, which could take a while. <laughs> but, so now- um, and we also have um, we also have some chatter about the the seniors tour and mm. the, usually the Friday before the show and shine we ran a seniors tour where we took a parade of our vehicles as well as other vehicles in town, non club members anybody who wanted to join. And we went to the six or seven different uh, senior homes mm. in the city. And I can assure you the club members thrive on the smiles and the interaction mm. they get from that tour. So it's a, it's a real highlight for us. And if the um, if the COVID regulations or the, the restrictions are lifted, especially with the seniors being you know in a, in a higher risk category, yeah. I can assure you we'll get together and we'll, uh, we'll light them up for the seniors pretty good.
5: Now, with the restriction of getting together, I'm thinking people who still have work to do on their cars, though, or their vehicles, I guess, more specifically, um, can still do it, right? If they can get the parts, they can still work on their vehicle.
8: Absolutely. Most of the most of the car club members uh, tinker on their own vehicles. And um, being closer to home this year has allowed some of the hot rodders to tinker or repair or maybe even finish a car they were working on. So uh, we may even get a chance to see a few uh, new rides show up this year. I mean, most of us are just waiting for the last few residential streets to be swept. And, uh, I'd love to see a, a car or two or five that uh, I've yet to see. And the springtime brings out uh, brings out the summer the summer effort. And uh, we're uh, we're looking forward to maybe a, a new car or two.
5: So over the winter, do you keep tabs with some of the other owners? And some of them have been telling you what they're working on and how it's coming along.
8: Actually, that's that's one of the other things that we miss. Is our club has impromptu breakfasts. Uh, there's a, you know there's a standard group of guys that'll get together at this restaurant or that restaurant for breakfast or afternoon coffee on a Wednesday, and uh, that's where the ideas exchange hands. I've seen vehicles exchange hands at these breakfasts, and and uh, that's where the that's where the head banging sessions and the bench racing we like to call it takes place, and. Um, these things unfortunately can't they just can't happen right now so i'm sure that much of this is happening by telephone but uh, we we help each other we consult each other and uh we we tinker on each other's vehicles but right now unfortunately if we're playing by the rules that's just having to uh, put be put on hold
5: okay chris knight if anybody wants more information on the cruising classics what's the best way to do it
8: we have a uh, pretty comprehensive website. It's cruisingclassics.ca. Mm-hmm. And there's no G in cruising. It's, it's C-R-U-I-S-I-N classics.ca. And we have a Facebook page. Uh, just, just uh, I believe it's just a Cruising Classics Car Club on Facebook. And um, the we, we welcome uh, comments and input and visitors to our website, of course. So lots of information there.
0: Chris Knight from the Cruising Classics Car Club has recorded on Thursday evening as a part of our post-to-post program here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. One final interview coming up in a moment here on After 9.
1: Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
0: And our final interview this morning is with Jesse Church, who called in on Thursday evening to talk a little bit about the WHL Bantam Draft, but he is also the golf pro up at Aberdeen Glen, so first off, we uh, asked him about the opening of Aberdeen this year.
6: So, driving range is going to open this weekend, 9 o'clock. Okay. On Saturday. Um, restaurant, we will announce um, times on that uh, kind of tomorrow, um, just as we figure out whether we're going to go at uh, 10 or 11 o'clock. Um, but it will be, uh, we will open the restaurant as well for takeout orders um, at some point on Saturday. Okay.
5: And so now... So it's just the driving range itself. Any theories on when the course might be opening?
6: Uh, As of right now, our our kind of working uh, knowledge is going to be May 8th, um, just because we're waiting on uh, some of the snow to still get out of there and for everything to dry up just a little bit.
5: Oh come on, Prince George and Snow! You gotta go. You gotta know how to play to the conditions in Prince George.
6: Play to the conditions, yeah. <laughs> in the shade, if you can't find your ball, well, just go home.
5: Yeah. <laughs> just don't use a white ball. Yeah. Can't. And <laughs> again, I saw a cartoon. Somebody said where that's going to make one thing different for, for golfers is if you hit your ball into the woods, you've got to go and look for it yourself. You can't ask your playing partner to come with you.
6: Well, as long as you stay six feet apart i'm sure you're okay
5: yeah yeah a six
0: foot sweep that'd be good yeah
5: so um how is the course looking
6: uh the course is looking good uh we took the tarps off of the green mm-hmm. and um everything's come out uh, very nice from what i've seen so far i have just been around the um the main clubhouse area i haven't ventured out onto the course yet as we're uh Hastily getting ready for uh, for the for the weekend, but uh, right now everything looks good. Talking with the superintendent, everything looks uh, to be on schedule right
5: now. Good. Now, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here.
6: I'm surprised.
5: Yeah, what a surprise, eh? You
6: know uh, what year you're
5: going to? A little bit. Okay. WHL Bantam draft was held this week. Yes. And... I know I don't have it with me, but I know we got something. We'll probably talk to somebody about this next week from the Cougars about who they picked up in the draft and everything. What I found interesting though was I went through the entire draft. Nobody from Prince George was taken in the draft.
6: Yeah, you know what? And that's gonna unfortunately that's gonna be a a bit of a chip on the uh, on the shoulder, especially with the um, the major bantam boys because Mm -hmm. uh, they had a a relatively good showing from what I, from what I saw of their scoreboards this year. Yeah. Um, there's going to be some guys that are looking to, uh, to make a couple of statements. Now that being said, some of the guys on the minor midget team that are um, primarily 15 year old, uh, you know, they were, uh, they were signed by other teams. I think of um, Mr. Cousins and, um, and those types of guys. And I think that, uh, you know, after the bantam draft, you some to prove and, uh, They've got a lot to go over and do with that, so good for them for, for doing that. But uh, unfortunate that nobody got
5: picked up. Well, as I said, nobody from Prince George got picked up. I did find a couple of players from this area though. Tanner okay. Mollenbeck from McBride was drafted fifth overall by Saskatoon.
6: By Saskatoon, good for him.
5: Yeah, he's playing with the He played last year with the Yale Hockey Academy, and okay. also in the first round, Terrell Goldsmith out of Fort St. James, drafted by Prince Albert number 16. He played last year down in Delta at the hockey academy there.
6: Excellent. Well, I mean Fort St. James um has a little bit of a history of turning out some uh, some decent hockey players, um but uh I know nobody from Prince George got uh, got drafted, but at least something somebody from the area did and um Goes to speak that uh, a lot of teams are looking to that um, collegiate, uh, not collegiate, but the uh, the high academy yeah. style hockey now yeah. instead of uh, instead of the um, the minor midget and major midget leagues.
5: Yeah, so you're wondering because we've even seen that at the NHL level to some extent, where it used to be almost everybody who came in the NHL through the draft was the WHL, the OHL, the QMJHL, and now it's worldwide.
6: Hundred percent. And the other thing that I've noticed a lot is um, you're getting players that get drafted in the, you know, because they, they get drafted when they're eighteen, right? I mean, some yeah. of those guys are just finishing high school, um, you know, just kind of getting out into the uh, into the adult world, so to speak. And you'll see, with the exception of the uh, generational talents like Patterson and Mick David and those kind of guys, you know, a lot of them, the NHL team want them to go to play university hockey for a couple of years because they want them to get used to that kind of grind rather than it just being you know major midget or junior a or WHL hockey right
5: yeah you still get some who get drafted and get sent back to their junior team but as you say a lot more of them now it seems are either being drafted out of the universities or are going to university after they've drafted
6: yeah and the uh, the NCAA has put together a um, and the and, and hockey USA, uh, have put together amazing programs regarding that because uh, I'm going to say it was about 10 or 15 years ago. I think they got tired of seeing the, uh, the hockey world dominated by the Europeans and, and the Canadians because it's such a fixture um, for us with hockey and they had to do something. So by doing the Hockey USA and really elevating their, their college programs, uh, they've been able to do that.
5: Yeah, because that was one thing I was noticing. Because um, the Hockey News had their prospects issue out this week, and I picked it up. I haven't had a chance to really go through it that much, but a lot of the players in there, especially some of the top prospects, are off the U.S. development team.
6: Yeah, definitely, and you're gonna and you're gonna see a lot more of that um, because of the of the steps that they're putting in for the programs. And uh, you know, we talk a lot of Canadian hockey when uh, whenever I've been on the show, but. There is no doubt in my mind that the U.S. is, as much as they were considered a hockey superpower, quote-unquote, before, you know, they were the top four. If you go Canada, Russia, Sweden's always kind of in the mix, Finland and and the U.S.A. um, uh, They kind of interchange um, between those last three teams, uh, and they're just going to keep getting better because they're putting more of those academies, and there's a lot more players that are focused on, okay, well, I'm going to go get my college education paid for, and then maybe there's a chance for me to play in the NHL.
5: Yeah. Okay, so Jesse, again, when is the driving range opening?
6: The driving range is opening up on Saturday morning, 9 a.m., Okay. and the golf course hopefully May 8th. That's tentative based on weather.
0: And as mentioned, that was Thursday evening that we talked with Jesse Church about Aberdeen Glenn and the W.H.L. Bantam Draft. That'll wrap it for today's edition of After 9. Uh, be sure to tune in tomorrow morning when Alan Wishart steps in as the host for uh, the full program After 9.